Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Library in Boston with an online presence at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host, and as frequent listeners to Seekers and Scholars probably well know by now, we see our podcast as happening at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. So naturally, that means that we are very interested in how education relates to spiritual questions and spiritual experience. So I'm so happy to be welcoming Ben Marcus to the podcast for a discussion on the importance of religious literacy in society and what's involved in achieving religious literacy. So welcome, Ben. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We're very happy to have you with us. We're speaking to you from your workplace in Washington, D.C. Ben is the religious literacy specialist with the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute, and that's located at the Museum in Washington. Ben, your, your title is Religious Literacy Specialist, and you know that feels really good to me because I feel in need of a specialist, uh, particularly <laughs> in this, uh, <laughs> this realm of religious literacy because at the Mary Baker Library, and we're situated at the headquarters of the Christian Science Church in Boston, annually we receive hundreds of thousands of visitors who come to our site as a tourist destination primarily. So naturally, questions about Christian science come up in that context. And so we're communicating to people from this vast and diverse pluralistic world on a daily basis basis. So what does it mean to be the uh, religious literacy specialist at the Religious Freedom Center? So it's sort of a made-up title. I'm the religious literacy specialist. And what that means is I think about how to train and equip folks to feel competent and confident talking about religion in a variety of settings. So a lot of the work that I do mm-hmm. is with K-12 educators, mm-hmm. working with people in public and private schools to understand how to teach about religion in ways that are academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate. So my background is in religious studies. I studied religion from an academic perspective as an undergraduate and graduate student. And my focus in that training was to consider how educators can best teach other people about religion to understand how religion operates in private and public life. So the operating definition of religious literacy that we use at the center is drawn from the American Academy of Religion. Mm -hmm. And the AAR is the largest professional association for scholars in the world who study religion from an academic perspective. And in a document in 2010 that they published called Guidelines for Teaching About Religion in K-12 Public Schools, the definition of religious literacy that they offer is the ability to discern and analyze the fundamental intersections of religion with social, political, and cultural life. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about religious literacy at the center, we're really starting from there. Uh, As you might have noticed in that definition of religious literacy, it does not privilege or overemphasize the importance of content knowledge, although we certainly recognize that one cannot talk about religion well, if you don't have some sort of content knowledge in uh, religion as a field, religious studies as a field, and in specific religious traditions, but really our focus is helping others uh, become familiar with the concepts and tools of religious studies as an academic discipline, 
and use those concepts and tools in a skillful way so that they're able to understand how religion shows up in private and public life. You know, here at the Mary Baker Library, we had an exhibit, and it was longstanding here. It was called the Quest Gallery, and it uh, really told the story of Mary Baker Eddy and her journey and how it led to her discovery of Christian science and then her articulating of Christian science and the establishment of the Christian Science Church. And a problem that we encountered was that public schools, when they came to our center to have different kinds of learning experiences, often did not want to go to that particular gallery. And and this is actually language from a paper that you wrote, Religion is a third rail in public schools. And it, it's, uh, that exhibit seemed to be a third rail for many, many teachers. And we felt in putting together this exhibit that it was not proselytizing. There was nothing that was inviting people into having a religious experience. It was just giving an academic, uh, hopefully somewhat entertaining uh, presentation of this story of the discovery of Christian science in the experience of, of Mary Baker Eddy. I think one thing that I wish all Americans really understood was what the rules are when it comes to religion and public education. Mm-hmm. So I would turn to a set of guidelines, a series of consensus statements, really, that were produced by Charles Haynes and some of his colleagues in the 80s and 90s and early aughts. What they attempted to do was to bring together people from across the political, ideological, and religious spectrum to agree on what is allowed in public education. There are a lot of disagreements when it comes to religion and public schools, but there's a lot of common ground between people of of very different perspectives. And in one of those documents, which was actually sent to every public school in the country in the year 2000 by the Department of Education, they lay out some guiding principles for differentiating between teaching about religion, which is the academic study of religion, Mm -hmm. and teaching religion. That document is called A Teacher's Guide to Religion in Public Schools. And, And they differentiate, they say, the academic study of religion, teaching about religion, is about the academic awareness of different religious traditions But what it is not, it's not the practice of religion. It is not asking students to promote or denigrate any one way of being religious. It does not favor religion over non-religion, one religion over another, or non-religion over religion. Uh, It's not a confessional study of religion where you're asking students to conform to any one way of being religious. So I think when we have teachers and students and Americans just in general understand that there's a difference between teaching about religion and teaching religion, they often have a framework then for assessing or better assessing whether an educational opportunity is appropriate or not in a public school. That's great. Uh, You know, I'm going to reference this same paper of yours. The title is Teaching About Religion in Public Schools, Launder Practice. Near the end, you make this statement, and it it brought up a question for me. Um, What you write is, quote, The study of religion from a constitutional academic perspective can decrease students' negative attitudes and prejudices toward the religious and non-religious other without affecting students' own religiosity. So one of the questions that comes to my mind, and, and this may have to do with parents more than anyone else, but 
that last statement, without affecting a student's own religiosity, it seems that oftentimes religion is something that's very closely and intimately held. And the idea of exposing your child or exposing even yourself to other uh, religious beliefs might intrude upon that closely held personal belief. How do you think about being exposed to other religions, perhaps inviting one to, um, to question one's own faith? That's a really great question. It's something that comes up quite often. And the concern manifests in different ways in different parts of the country. I travel all over the United States and in different regions and in urban versus suburban versus rural areas. The concern is different. Sometimes parents are worried that the schools will make all of their children into atheists, or sometimes they're worried they'll make them all into evangelical Christians or all into Muslims. It varies depending on on who the uh, unknown other is, I think. Mm-hmm. But th- the good news is that there is some data that shows that if one teaches about religion in an academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate way, students don't necessarily become more or less religious. So the only public school district in the country that we know of to this day that requires students to take a standalone religious studies course is in Modesto, California. And in Modesto, all students are required to take the standalone religious studies course in high school. And because it's so unique, there was a good deal of interest in studying the outcomes of the course. And there were two scholars named Emil Lester and Patrick Roberts who conducted a study in Modesto, California. And what they found is that students who went through the course did not become more or less religious, but they did become more likely to recognize the importance of the rights of others, including those with whom they strongly disagree. Part of the challenge of religious literacy education is that there need to be more studies of students who go through these types of courses, but unfortunately, the courses are offered on a bit of an ad hoc basis, so there just hasn't been as much research. But we're really encouraged by the findings of the Modesto study because it shows that education about religion, when done well, can be positioned as a truly civic education. It does not, mm-hmm. It's not intended to shape the religious lives of students. It's intended to shape the civic lives of students, that they recognize that in the context of the United States, the First Amendment is important, and it's critical to really respect the rights, the First Amendment rights of other people. What would be great is, do you have the First Amendment uh, <laughs> yeah, available to you? I do. Yeah. I'd love to have you, you read it. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Mm. So how does religious literacy, how does the work you do uh, relate to really supporting and honoring that First Amendment? The Religious Freedom Center is part of something called the Freedom Forum Institute, And the Freedom Forum Institute educates the public about all five freedoms of the First Amendment. So those five freedoms are freedom of religion, speech, press, petition, and assembly. The Religious Freedom Center focuses on the history, meaning, and significance of the religious liberty clauses of the First Amendment. But some of our sister organizations look at those other four freedoms. So we are lucky to be part of of a larger network of organizations and centers that look holistically at those five freedoms. We see 
three competencies as mutually reinforcing. One is legal literacy about, as I mentioned, the history, meaning, and significance of the religious liberty clauses of the First Amendment. The second is religious literacy, so people understand how religion operates in private and public life. And the third competence is the skills of civil dialogue, Mm. so that people are able to have informed, respectful conversations about issues that are important to all of us. So at the Religious Freedom Center, we see those three as, as mutually reinforcing, that one cannot protect the rights of oneself or others if one doesn't understand what's at stake or what those rights might implicate, right? So if we're committed to protecting religious freedom, but we don't fully understand what it means to be religious and how religion manifests in people's private and public lives, then our protections of religious freedom will fall short because we might only want to protect, for example, a theological belief, the right to hold certain theological positions, but religious freedom should protect more than that. It should not just protect theological belief, but also to a certain extent, the ways that we behave and how we form our communities. Mm. And of course, that there are limits on that. We don't, have, we don't have unlimited rights to behave in ways that we want to, if it's grounded in a sincerely held religious belief. There are boundaries to, to our religious freedom, just as there are boundaries to all freedoms that we hold. But better understanding the complexity, the full complexity of religious identity, better prepares us to protect religious freedom. And the skills of civil dialogue are critical because we recognize that there will be disagreement about where we place those boundaries. Some people want to allow for a broader expression of of religious behavior that's not just about uh, ritual practice, but also about how we express our behaviors when we're business people or when we're, uh, you know, family members, different ways that we understand our, our religious identity. Um, and some people want to, you know, narrow those restrictions. So it, it depends. But what's important is that when we are speaking with one another about how we're going to safeguard religious freedom, we do so respectfully, that we recognize that people are often, hopefully, engaging in conversations with good intent, that they are people of strong conviction, that are trying to make sense of how they live a life of deep conviction within the context of, of a state that has certain laws, and that we're going to disagree and, and we need to, to have a bit of, the Christian word that comes to mind is grace, that we need to, yeah. we need to have some sort of, of forgiveness for those and understanding of those who we may disagree with. Ben, I was fascinated by this piece that you wrote the title of which is Religious Literacy in American Education, which is a a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Religion in American Education. And in this piece, you really liken becoming adept at being literate in religion with learning a foreign language. My thinking about this was framed by the language learning that I did as a middle and high schooler. I grew up outside of Chicago and went to public schools that were majority Hispanic. And I, myself, am a gringo. I did not grow up speaking Spanish. And a lot of my friends were native Spanish speakers. So in part, just to have conversations with my friends in their native language, I wanted to learn Spanish. So I I took Spanish classes in middle and high school. And by the time I was in AP Spanish, I certainly had some familiarity with the language, but I was not fluent by any means. I struggled through oral exercises when we were speaking in class, but I could do relatively well on written exams. 
And in preparing for the AP Spanish exam, our teacher had us take another nationally administered exam called the National Spanish Exam. And I found out uh, a few weeks after we took the test that I had the highest score in the class, even though a number of the students in the class were native Spanish speakers who were there to <laughs> learn how to write formal written Spanish, though they could have fluent conversations in the language. So for me, this wasn't a sign that I was somehow better at speaking the language than them, quite the opposite. It was a it was a sign that the test was deeply flawed, mm-hmm. that the kinds of knowledge about the language, about Spanish that it was measuring, were not components of the language that would make me more fluent. They were merely these uh, elite, obscure forms of rhetoric or of grammar, like the imperfect subjunctive and the use of certain prepositions. So that, to me, is a helpful way of thinking about the ways that we test religious knowledge. For example, there was a survey conducted by Pew Research Center in 2010 called the U.S. Religious Knowledge Survey. On the U.S. Religious Knowledge Survey, what they found is that Americans on average could only answer about 50% of the questions correct. So there were 32 questions. Mm -hmm. And what they further did is they broke it down by different religious communities. And if you compare the religious communities that did well on the survey with another index called the Religiosity Index, what you find is that religious communities that rank high on the Religiosity Index, meaning religious, their religious identities are incredibly important to their lives, mm-hmm. the, the communities that score high on the Religiosity Index don't do very well on the U.S. Religious Knowledge Survey. And the communities that score low on the Religiosity Index, they do very well on the U.S. Religious Knowledge Survey. So my question following that survey, which is informed by a scholar at Brown University named Thomas Lewis, is that we might be measuring the wrong kinds of things when we're measuring religious literacy or what we what is often referred to as religious literacy in the United States. That what we're measuring, just like on that national Spanish exam, we're measuring an elite version of these specific quote-unquote religious languages that doesn't actually match up with the ways that people are communicating fluency and fluently with their co-religionist. We're often trained in the United States to talk about belief only. So when we meet someone of a different religious tradition, we ask them what they believe, and it often leads to an interreligious dialogue that is grounded only in the differences or similarities of belief. Mm-hmm. But what we find when we look at religious identity is that not everyone actually cares primarily about their theological beliefs. Their religious identities are much more complex than that. I break it down into three categories, belief, behavior, belonging. That for some people, their religious language leads with belief. It leads with the things that they believe, whether that's their theologies, doctrines, sacred narratives, their social values and ethics. For some people, they lead with their behavior. And by that, I'm not just referring to ritual practice, but also their habits and daily practices, the things that they do day in and day out that inform and are informed by their religious identities. And for some people, it's their communities of belonging. It's not only what they mean when they say, I'm a Christian scientist, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Jew, or I'm a Hindu, or I'm Baha'i, um, but also what they mean when, they, when they're talking about their racial, ethnic, familial, gender, and other identities. What you're saying, it, it makes me think of a, uh, another podcast episode that we recorded with a scholar named Eva Payne, and in it she said the following, quote, you want a community or a person to be able to see something of themselves and their truth in what you write. 
Mm-hmm. You want them to be able to recognize themselves, but they don't necessarily have to agree with it. Yeah, I love that. Religious studies scholars need to exist between the poles of talking about religion in such a way that is entirely foreign to them and talking about religion in a way that is only privileging an insider's perspective without recognizing that there are multiple insider perspectives. The way that the scholar does that in in a respectful manner um, that is still true to their field or discipline it's a, it's a challenge, and so right. it's something that I think about quite often. Well, thank you for thinking about it and writing about it so well. Uh, it's, it's great, and just look forward to, to seeing more of your work. Thank you so much, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Ben Marcus on religious literacy for the 21st century. Ben is Religious Literacy Specialist at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute at the Museum in Washington, D.C. For our next episode, we welcome Dan Bullman, photo archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, for a conversation about the many stories the photographs in the library's collections have to tell, including about the history of photography, the history of Boston, as well as about Mary Baker Eddy and the history of the Christian Science Church and the Christian Science Monitor. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for joining us in the world of seekers and scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.